Welcome to Startup to Last, a podcast about founders who are in it for the long haul. I'm Rick, and I run a software-enabled services company called Leg Up Health. And I'm Tyler. On the side, I work with Rick on Leg Up Health, but my main business is a bootstrapped SaaS company called Less Annoying CRM. What up, Rick? I feel like you jump-started that. Like, I felt like that was early. I went too early? I think I you think, went too early. I think we got it. I think the recording got uh, okay. it, but we'll if, find if out. If you say Although, so. Uh, so the moment we're done here, I'm going to hit stop and take a Uber to the airport. So uh, I'm going to have no time to edit this. I think <laughs> we're probably not going to have the normal intro of this time and start up to last. Well, I like it though. The the intro? I like I like it when we change things up. When we change things up, yeah. yeah. Um, Keeps people on their toes. Absolutely. We've been uh, doing this for three years or whatever. <laughs> Well, um, not much. It's uh, second to last day of open enrollment for Leg Up Health. So um, JD is drinking from a fire hose uh, with yeah. all the people who procrastinated to the last minute to complete their uh, health insurance enrollment for the year. Um, so he's busy, busy. Uh, but um, overall, it's been really, really a really positive open enrollment. Yeah, that's great to hear. I, it seems crazy to me that... It, it, Filing taxes is the same way where it's just like everyone is filing taxes on like April 14th um, and every accountant is filing everyone's taxes on April 14th. And it's like, is there really nothing we can do to spread this out over more than like this one day out of the year? Like I, I proposed uh, in like a partner meeting or whatever for like up health. Is there some kind of incentive that can be offered or something like, hey, can someone sign up for health insurance like a week early? And there's just I, nothing I that can be done. I think there's absolutely stuff that can be done. I think um, we could listen. I think uh, next year we'll definitely do something to incentivize uh, early, uh, not even early, like not last minute renewals. It's really, yeah. it's not like you're renewing early. It's, it's right. just that you're not waiting till the last minute. Um, but I think we could do something like, even if it's just like a, Hey, we'll put a deposit into your health savings account. We'll give you a, a gift card to, you know, Amazon. But I thought the problem that you could run into, you're not allowed to incentivize people for signing up for insurance because otherwise like insurance agents would be undercutting each other and stuff like that. So so there's a delicate balance where you want to say this is the reward for doing it earlier, but can you are you allowed to do that? I, I believe as long as it's not uh, conditioned on making us the agent. Um, so if, if I think as long as it gets, you know, the reward is available, whether they continue us as the agent or not, um, then it's fine. But you don't want to give the, I mean, what would it mean to give the reward to someone if we're not the agent? Well, I think we can offer it to say, Hey, you're, if you're an existing client, um, whether you renew with us or with someone else, um, if you, if you renew and you can prove that you renewed, in the first week of open enrollment. Yeah. Okay. And uh, Or it's not even renewed. It's like completed your open enrollment application update. Yeah. Uh, then, you know, we'll give you $20. Fair enough. It sure does sound bizarre to uh, give someone an Amazon gift card for switching to a different agent, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> but well, that's, but that's what, if you don't do that, that's when you get into the rebating issue. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, but cool, but it was... switch to another agent. We've only yeah, had well, one person switch ever and switch take, to another agent, and then take the <laughs> the gift card. Yeah, we've only so uh, JD and I were talking this week, and we've only had one person like actively fire us for another agent, and mm. it was like it keeps us up at night. Like it's the only person, but you know why they did it? I assume it's like their brother in law or something. It's their spouse's best friend, um, <laughs> and so it's like well, had, we had to do it. She like cornered us, you know. She cornered us one night, yeah. you know, and. 
Sorry, it's guys. Like, Thanks for two years of great service. Yeah, fair enough. But uh, that's the person leaving for another agent. But like, there's still a pretty decent amount of churn, it sounds like, during it. It's an interesting business because all the new customers come in during open enrollment. Not all, but a lot do. But also, that's when you lose everybody because it's, you know, in the SaaS world, you're always talking about monthly versus annual subscriptions. Like health insurance is always an annual subscription and the churn always happens during open or almost always happens during open enrollment. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know why it, it doesn't make sense for that to be true um, because generally health insurance is driven by life events, not a calendar year. But mm-hmm. it is this, you know, the, the reason it does happen is that prices change. You you do budget your healthcare on an annual basis around your deductible. And so there almost is this like, like if you sign up for a year and you already like six months in, it's like, well, why am I going to cancel this now? I've already like met some of my deductible, like... Uh, but if if you are starting a year, it's like, hmm, do I want to pay this or do I want to like you know roll the dice and see if I don't get sick? Yeah. Also, just no one wants to think about it, but you, you have to think about it during open enrollment. So yeah, it's yeah. easier just to let it bill. Yeah. Um, cool. Any topics to discuss there, or just it's almost over? Is, is life? I know you've said open enrollment goes another month for if people want to start uh, February first, but. Are do you are, things are going to calm down? They must calm down a little bit after. Oh, I um, think it'll calm down big time through the holidays. Yeah. Um, for, uh, you know, we'll, we'll shift to like updating our database. Uh, we've got to get our the, you know twenty twenty four plans in for JD to be able to catalog people, and then he'll start adding people's policies, and so he'll have some time to sort of get organized around service. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah, I think uh, there'll be another wave that comes in the first you know maybe the last week of December, and then the first couple of weeks of, of January. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's very seasonal. The the cool thing about this open enrollment though has been um I I can see um so so I have two things I want to talk about and I want to separate them because they're completely independent. One is like the biggest concern I think both of us have with this business is can we scale it profitably um given the high service component um and sort of uh, the seasonality, right? Like mm-hmm. it's this it's it's like requires Lots of focus for three or four months, and then it's like dead. And then how do you how do you make that work operationally? Um, and then it's you know it's intensive, like, and so um, so so one is capacity. I want to talk about, and the second is uh, I just want to talk about how like I think this this open enrollment is different than all the rest in terms of like observed learnings and how I think it'll set up a different type of year next year in terms of how we think about the business um, and mm-hmm. growing it. Um, I know we've touched on that in the in the past, but I, I would love to dig into that today. Um, if we have time, but on the capacity front, um, uh, I was talking to JD on Wednesday and we, we kind of separated into two capacities. There's like functional capacity, which is how many, like if I was a robot, how many like enrollments can I do with the time and energy that I have? Um, and then there's this other capacity, which is emotional capacity. Um, and, because a lot of health insurance decisions are fairly emotional, um, could be someone has cancer or they're having a baby or they're having a divorce. Uh, it, it can get, and they, and, it, and it, you know, so, some of them get into like super like nuanced things like, Hey, I just lost my job. I, am I going to be eligible for Medicaid? Like the, um, the toll on like, am I going to let this person down? Am yeah. I going to like, if, if I advise them the wrong way, this family with a, you know, a serious health condition in their family or someone in their household has, could could, I could screw up their lives. 
Like, and so um, I think that weighs heavy on the leg up health employee or whoever's the advisor and or coach in, in that situation. And so the more we can do, so anyway, I think, I think we've, we've sort of hit a limit with JD on emotional capacity, like in terms of at about two, you know, 200 people, mm-hmm. but functional capacity, he's like, I'm nowhere near the limit. Um, and so wow. it's a very interesting, different problem. That? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, the way, where I went with this was, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, um, was with emotional, uh, most of the emotional, um, toll comes from the uncertainty of being able to advise confidently. Um, and so, uh, this open enrollment, we're, we're because of the volume, we're, we're seeing a lot of edge cases that we haven't seen before. Like, uh, what if, uh, I've got nine, nine family members and one of them is, you know, a you know, has a different dad and, you know, it's just like all this like very complex stuff that we, you don't, you don't see until you get to like larger numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in one way, like this is just a rite of passage where in order to like become an expert on some of these edge cases, you've got to go through and advise on the expert, but then it becomes a sort of a tribal knowledge, like documented knowledge center. Um, and so part of it's like, maybe it just gets better with time. The other part is you, you probably can template this stuff to a degree if you're intentional about it outside of open enrollment and have sort of unemotional playbooks for, you know, 95% of this stuff. Yeah. It's tough though. You know, so, uh, one person needs to be able to handle more than 200 clients at scale. I, I realize we're not, you know, in the early days of a startup, things don't necessarily need to scale well, but like that's saying, you know, a hundred thousand dollars of revenue per person or whatever doesn't work like, um, for a business. Unless we have subscription revenue from a leg up benefits customer or some other revenue source that's juicing it. But yes, I agree with you. 200 Um, is the bare minimum to like where this thing can make sense, but it's not ideal. Yeah. So lesson knowing serum just got to about 200. Um, but like our model is a little different in that, uh, we hire almost entirely entry level people pay them well for like customer service, but we're not like our engineers are not making a lot of money, but everyone has built in raises. So they get more expensive every year. Um, with a, you know, average tenure of about five years, 200 per employee is about break even for us right now. Um, so not that leg up health will necessarily pay people the same way, but yeah, 200 as just for anyone else starting a business, this is something I wish I'd thought about earlier because we kind of hired ahead of this. We, we hired what we could afford to pay in the moment, not thinking, well, people need to get paid more as they get more experience and stuff like that. I wish I had had this number 200 in mind because we would have hired slower, which I think would have been better. And just to anyway. be clear, we're talking about $200,000 $200, of ARR per employee. Yes. Per headcount. And it's a very, like, ARR per headcount is a very interesting metric to track and try to optimize around a target as you scale because it can give you confidence that you have something that will... Um, have some margin and some cushion in there for mistakes and growth yeah. and retention. So I have in my head 250s where I want to be. 200 is acceptable. Anyway, I realize that's not what you were talking about. But yeah, if you're at 100, that's probably f- like, I think a lot of businesses are like, yeah, we're not at that. The number we need to be at, you're not at it with your first employee. But you got to get there. It'd be a lot easier to imagine that. Like, I, it's all achievable, right? But the emotional mm. thing is probably harder like normally what you say is, oh, we'll automate stuff. We'll, we'll systematize stuff. It's hard to automate emotions, you know? Um, but I think you're probably right that if confidence is the problem, you can definitely get more confident. Yeah. And then but you're you still going to be dealing with these hard situations. Exactly. So there's only so much you can do, but 
where I, where I, I sort of dug in a little bit with JD and was like, you know, what is it really? It's like, well, it's when someone asks a question that has a huge impact on their lives and we don't have the answer right in front of us mm-hmm. um, that we're confident in. I mean, that requires a phone call, multiple phone calls, research online. Um, and then sometimes like it's so ex- such an extreme situation that like there is no, di- there is no answer. It's like, we're dealing with a government. We're going to have to work through this with you. And that's a very unsettling thing as an advisor to feel. And again, in these early stages, it's probably not worth doing what I'm saying here, but as this thing scales, probably there needs to be a point where you say, this is, this is too complicated. We can't, we like, we could figure it out, but we recommend you talk to so talk to who? Uh, someone else. Oh, like the, yeah. we, we found this person who specializes in this. This is like, if you really want to, um, this is a serious issue. We, this is gets, gets out of sort of our expertise. Let me recommend you to someone else. Yeah. Cause like I, you know, we used to, we, we kind of still have this attitude of like help the customer with whatever you can, but sometimes they're just like, Oh, you know, I need to set up MailChimp. I don't know how MailChimp works. And we're like, we got, we've just got to be like, we can't help you with that. I'm sorry. That's, that's between you and MailChimp. You yeah, know? here here's a link to the help.mailchimp.com website. Yeah. And then, and then they the customer says MailChimp support sucks. They don't have help docs on this. You you'll you'll pick up the phone. They they always try to get support from us on other tools and we we help a little bit, but yeah. Obviously with health insurance it'll be different, but I do think like eventually we'll need to say this one client is taking up a ton of time but also a ton of emotional bandwidth and we just can't do that. What well, both of these examples the health insurance example, and then also the MailChimp example sort of beg is like, is there a upsell opportunity for like a, um, you know, premium concierge service? Um, have you considered that from MailChimp standpoint? I think it probably applies in this case too. Yes, we've considered it. Um, every time I do the math on that, it's like the, the number of people who need that is low enough. Basically, anytime we ever think about could we charge more money for something, it's like, okay, 10 people would pay us an extra $100 a month, but we'd have to spend like tons of time ramping this up as a thing we could offer. I think it's different for Leg Up Health because like Leg Up Health is a service business and building that expertise like is much more core to the like the business than I think providing MailChimp support is a less knowing CRM. This is a tangent, um, but at Windfall, we had our exec offsite last week in San Francisco. Um, really hard trip, by the way. Like, I was gone Monday through Sunday. Um, we had our holiday party on Saturday, so it just like worked out that the offsite were back to back. And it's so, like part of my feedback, I'm going to have to say like, let's do those different weeks so that I can come home and, you know, break yeah. it into two trips. Um, but uh, but it was a really productive offsite. We hired, uh, um, or I guess it's the coach of our CEO who came in and did like a facilitation with the executive team and like worked through his workbook. Really cool, like like thought process in terms of like how to spend exact offsite time in terms of not thinking about the business. It like created all this space. We spent most of our time like talking about how to talk to each other, hmm. which seems so silly, but uh, it was very it productive. Silly at all. <laughs> uh, but but uh, anyway, there's this concept called uh, that this that I'm now I see it everywhere now. Um, it's called the sucker's choice. And um, I, I, can I use it as like what you just said was like either you don't offer the service or you offer it and you scale it all the way up, um, and it's like there's there's his his uh his 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 you should check him out his company's Middle Path Consulting very cool, um, but like the Middle Path would be like actually you could offer it 
you know, paid to see bites and then shut it down in five months if, if it didn't yeah. you know, bite. I, I think there's often opportunity for that. For this specific one, what I mean is like we have to build the exp- expertise in MailChimp, which we, we don't know how MailChimp works. Um, so the amount of money we would get paid for those clients. Yeah, like, is, or well, is that would, a sucker's choice? We do. If we know the answer, we help them. Oh, I see. I see. So you're uh, the free consulting. We would piece. have to build up expertise we don't have, I think. You're probably right that there's the the thing is even if it worked out there I feel very confident there's no ramping up the demand like I, there's no way this turns into a twenty thousand dollar a month line of you know business for us so at best it's a very slight profit just yeah. I, I just don't think it's worth the distraction yeah usually like what I've noticed is that these sucker choice situations are often like our bias is actually saving us a lot of time by simplifying. The decision into like A or B, and mm-hmm. oftentimes it is the right decision. But um, sometimes there's a C. But so, but sometimes get. like you, it, it, if you if you get challenged on it, like there the, it, it opens up this. You know, it's not a fork in the road. It's you know. Yeah, I, I think that's else. a good mental model to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's other ways in which I've messed that up. <laughs> I don't think Mailchimp's one of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just I uh, you know anyway. Um, so that's the capacity thing. I think that's something we're going to have to like come out of this open enrollment. Uh, period focused on fixing between now and next year and or mm-hmm. fixing is not the right word, but like addressing because it's not, yeah. we can't fix it. Um, I mean, yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sounding like a broken record here, but just spreading. So in physics, there's like this concept of uh, what is it impact? And it's like force over time or something like that. Um, and the idea is if you, if you have like a collision between two things, if, if they're kind of elastic, uh, elastic's the wrong word, but like rubber versus metal or something, and they, it kind of spreads the collision out over 100 milliseconds instead of one nanosecond, it's the same amount of force being applied, but it's spread out over enough time that the actual impact is much lower. Um, I feel like spreading out, if there is any way to spread out this really intense period of open enrollment, over a longer period of time, that would go a long way towards scaling up JD to be able to handle more customers. I bet that, that's a great segue into like why I think next year's open enrollment is going to be different. And then I would love to hear what's on your mind. Um, the so so this past year it was all like we last year we exited open enrollment. And all we did was individual health insurance, mm-hmm. and we were like, okay, this was like interesting, uh, but but we really want to be in the in the B2B space, we were, we want to serve uh, employers. And so we spent most of this year up until middle of October, figuring out how to sell group health insurance and service it. And then what our leg up thing for this leg up benefits thing was, which is our stipend like product. I shouldn't call it a stipend product, which is our employer solution for companies that don't offer group health insurance. And I feel like we figured that out. And next year's going to be about like, how do we get more? It's like, how do we, scale, which is the capacity issue. And then how do we get more, uh, top of funnel? Um, mm-hmm. and I feel like that's a, it's going to be the, just being able to focus on that for a full year versus like figuring out how to do, how to build it, how to position it, how to explain it is going to be really, really interesting. Yeah. And yeah, if the employer thing opens up like, Oh, we can get customers in April because employers aren't locked into open enrollment. I, I mean, I guess during open enrollment this year, JD wasn't doing a ton of sales. He was mostly just like fulfilling service, expected service to kind of cl- existing or new clients, but it, it was about service. But yeah, that's another thing that 
a way to smooth everything out is to say, you know, the sales all happen during the slow months. This is just let's get renewals. Let's let's renew health insurance for all the people who we already have as clients. Yep, and then just like formalize our relationship with the new people. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Anyway, uh, thank you for for letting me talk. That was therapeutic. Um, cool. <laughs> what's up with you? Um. Yeah. Uh, still relatively calm. I honestly had a really great past couple of weeks at work. I. I feel I just feel so good about the team right now. Um, I think I mentioned like it's been about two years since anyone's left, and everyone just likes each other and is happy. And I, I keep following. Um, no one in particular comes to mind, but like you know, an amalgamation of lots of founders that I follow who, uh, like, are more successful than me, and they all want to sell or have already sold, and it it comes down to their unhappy like. In the way they got so successful is by creating an environment they don't actually want to be in. Um, and so I've been really grateful lately about just like, like we had a holiday party last Friday and, you know, pretty much the whole company showed up and we did like a white elephant exchange. And I mean, it was just a really fun time. And just a reminder to me that I'm making a lot less money than others, you know, the dream and like super, like I, I wouldn't trade having a great team and enjoying going into work every single day for more money. Um, I just feel really grateful for that right now. So I figured I'd share that. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I, that sobered me up a little bit. Like I, uh, yeah, we should be more grateful for like the pros of the path that we're on versus because there's like, yeah, the, the yeah, sir, there's certainly pros of the other path, but it's not all rainbows and sunshine. Yeah, like if you don't want the job you have right now, you're not successful. I don't care what else is going on. If you don't want your current situation, if you want something else, if you're looking forward to the next thing more than your what the thing you're doing right now, that's not success in my opinion. I'm going to write that of... down one second. Um, I, that was a good one. That should be the title of this episode. Where okay. uh, uh, this is the 21-minute uh, mark. 21-minute uh, mark. <laughs> it's worth, I think it's worth editing the title for this. Okay. Um, um, is the Definition of Success by Tilla King. <laughs> um, but that does lead into, so uh, this week we, so there's an employee-led group called IDEA, which stands for uh, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. Um, basically like DEI, diversity, equity, and, um, inclusion work. Uh, it's kind of, I do some DEI, like, like the company officially does some DEI work. And then this, this employee led group does kind of additional work above and beyond that. Um, and they had a kind of, they have a monthly meeting, which I normally don't attend because I want to it's supposed to be employee-led, so I feel like me being there is counterproductive to that. But this was like the annual recap where they put a presentation together that was kind of like, here's all the stuff we did this year. Um, and it was really great uh, seeing all the stuff that's happened this year on the DEI front. I tweeted about this, and uh, one of our listeners, Akshay, was like, can you share more on the podcast? So I thought maybe we'd spend a little bit of time diving into this. I know... DEI is a topic that a lot of people kind of roll their eyes at, but uh, it's been really important for less annoying. So I thought we'd talk about it. Yeah. And I don't know if this is true or not, but it, it sort of feels like something that came and went. Um, yeah. Especially, that... I th so I think a lot of people probably, well, my, my understanding of the timeline is from uh, Michael Brown getting killed in Ferguson through George Floyd in Minneapolis there was kind of this crescendo of interest in this that carried on for the next couple of years after George Floyd. And then basically 
layoffs started happening and interest rates started going up. And everyone was like, I think there were a lot of people who were kind of like reluctantly going along with it that were like, we can get away with whatever we want now. We, we can stop pretending we care about this. And they all stopped pretending. That's my impression. And I also feel like uh, some of the the re- like recent massive blowups, um, I'm thinking of uh, Silicon Bank and mm-hmm. um, I, I can't remember the other one's name, but but uh, I feel like DEI was like blamed almost for the, yeah. the failures. I mean, you see a lot of it, like the, the Harvard and uh, Penn and whoever else, uh, you know, these college presidents and chancellors and stuff are getting in hot water. And I, I, again, I'm not, I'm not sure what it has to do with DEI, but it's certainly getting blamed for a lot of it. Um, there's certain, there seems to be a backlash going on right now, which is unfortunate. It's so funny how things just go like <laughs> ebb flow, ebb flow. And we're in one of those ebbs. Yeah, we are. Um, and you know what? I bet it's going to come back, but I, I still care about it. Um, our company really cares. I, there are a lot of people who still care about it. I just think like, uh, a bunch of billionaires and VCs have stopped caring, <laughs> basically. Well, what, what 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 is making your your company and this uh, committee like stay focused and uh, amid all this? Yeah. Um. So I I want to answer that, but let me answer it in a roundabout way, which is like, let me share some of the kind of failures slash my impression of why people kind of roll their eyes at this. And let me let me start with you, like. I'm sure you've had moments, I certainly have, I think everyone has, where you like see some people doing DEI work and you kind of can't help but roll your eyes. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where, and let me be more specific, where it's like, is the work you're doing actually having any impact at all? That's the question I often ask myself when I see some of this work. Do you know what I'm yeah, talking about? Yeah, yeah. it's like I'm imagining um, someone like picking up trash and then putting it like on top of a counter and then it blows off and then it, it sits on the ground again. And then they're picking the trash up and putting it on the counter again. It's just like circular, but not going anywhere. Yeah. Like, you know, Google announces they're going to invest a hundred million dollars in whatever initiative. And then five years later, it's like, it, you know, they're investing in getting more women in, in programming. And then it's like five years later, you find out they actually have fewer women per capita at Google than they did when they started that thing. And it's like, does it, does it is any of this working? Does any of this matter? Um, I think we went through that phase a little bit. And and in particular, my, my observation is, okay, I'm going to say a bunch of shit I don't actually know about here, but here's my guess as to how a lot of things got where they are. And that is, I think um, DEI work seems to me to be dominated, or it seems to have a very academic culture. Academic meaning like the academy, like universities. And university professors are kind of, well, this is actually what the Harvard and Penn people just got in trouble for. They just talk and talk and talk and don't do anything, kind of. And to some extent, listen, my wife's a professor, my dad's a professor. I have respect for what they do. Uh, it, It serves a role, but you can't just talk and research all day. That is like step one, maybe. And then someone has to go take action. And that's like, that normally happens outside of academia. Um, but I feel like the DEI world is just a bunch of people having workshops and reading books and giving talks and having conferences. And I, for a long time, I was kind of like, well, what, what are we doing? What, what's the actual work, you know? Yep. So what does the actual work look like? Yeah. So, um, we, I'd say about a year and a half ago or something like that. So the, the person at the company who was kind of leading this ended up leaving to go do her own thing. And 
so we had to figure out, well, who's going to be in charge of this and all that. And I took, I, I certainly don't want to take credit for this, but like my, my instinct on anything that is like run it like a business kind of, and in particular run the project man, not like run it like a business, like you have to make money, but run it like project management. Like how do KPIs work? Um, or, or OKRs, but I actually don't, I'm pretty fuzzy on what all these, these terms mean, but the basic idea of like, let's set goals and let's well, they, figure out. Yeah. They're all the same. This is, let's be very clear. Yeah, like, okay. <laughs> but I think before it was just like, before where we were is we were like, we had a budget, $10,000 a year could go towards this stuff. Uh, plus the fellowship, we, the coding fellowship we do, where we teach people how to code that that's a meaningful extra expenditure, but $10,000. And we had a time budget, which was like, uh, basically four days a week of people's time um, can go towards DEI type work. And then it was like, well, I guess let's fill that. And so it was like, well, there's this consulting company that uh, does workshops on this. And I think we spent, honestly, like a, a ludicrous amount of money on this. Um, and they came in and they gave a workshop. And it was like, okay, uh, cool. I learned stuff. I, I, I don't even mean to like, say it was a bad thing, but it just wasn't connected to outcomes. Anyway, when we, the thing we're doing now is we're actually saying, what are our, like, what are the constraints here? Right. When we're talking about less annoying CRM, the product, if someone were to come in and be like, let's, uh, let's build like the world's best project management system. We'd be like, no, we're a CRM. That's not what we do. Uh, I don't think we were doing that before. So we kind of set constraints and then we said, what are all the goals that could fit within those constraints? Let's pick one or two or three. And then we said, what are actual concrete things we can do to impact those? Like, like, can we make a metric we can measure? And then how can we impact that metric? It's like, it's how every other part of a business runs, right? I'm saying like really obvious stuff, but we started doing that. And I have specifics I can share, but like just that basic philosophy is I think all it took really. The thing that stood out to me of what you said is like, I feel like someone smart said something like the definition of strategy is what you will not do. Um, hmm. And I feel like that's, that stood out. It's like, oh no, this is not, this is what this isn't. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that seems like the, that was a, a magical point. And so within this, of you know, smaller box, what can we do? Um, and yeah, it's like the minute you, you, sh you, sh you sh shrink, mm -hmm. uh, uh, things become much more tangible. Yeah. And, so, and I do want to, I, I want to start getting into specifics because I'm going anyone listening is, well, let me say one more vague thing before I do. Cause let me talk about the constraints you were just saying. <laughs> um, let me talk like the worst part, the worst period in history for less annoying CRM doing DEI work. Here's what was going on. We had this budget. Every, everyone at the company cares, believes in this and cares deeply about it. Um, or, you know, on average compared to other companies, I think people care a lot about it, but we're in this, I think, a lot of people have experienced DEI work being like shame, filled with shame and guilt and disappointment. And it's it's all about how bad things are and like, why aren't things better? And we're going to talk about all the inequities in the world and so on. And the, when we were really wallowing in that, the mode, was, we hadn't set these constraints. And so people were like, should we, uh, should we all go volunteer at a soup kitchen? There's this really great soup kitchen near our office. Should we go volunteer there? Uh, we have a $10,000 budget. There's this really great charity I know about. Can we just give some money to that charity? Um, we, you know, go, go volunteer at this program, summer program for kids that, you know, whatever. And these are all great causes, but the problem is we were just a drop in the bucket for all of these. And there was no continuity between any of them. And I think everybody just had this attitude of the world is so fucked up and we can't solve all these problems, which means we're failing. 
that was the worst. And that was maybe a year and a half or two years ago where we were in that mode. You can imagine how demoralizing that is, right? Um, so the constraints we set, we kind of did a whole reset. And I talked about this on the podcast at the time, but we did this whole reset with the idea of saying, like, let's let's focus on things where we actually can have an impact. And so one of two things has to be true for anything we work on. Number one, it has to either it, it, it has to be uh, a byproduct of what we're already working on. Um, I everyone probably knows this, but classic example of a byproduct is you have a lumber mill, you're sawing wood all day, that creates sawdust. Take that sawdust, pack it with glue, and make plywood or whatever. Um, is that what plywood is? Or particle board? Particle. I mean, board. that's I didn't know that. That's cool. And it, 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 apparently, it actually was like they used to throw all this sawdust away, and then someone's like, "Is there a way to like that's basically wood? Is there a way to kind of turn that into shitty wood?" <laughs> they do. Um, so, like the coding fellowship for us, I would argue is a is a byproduct. It's like we we have developers. We already like have all this training. Like if you hire an intern or a new hire, you have to be able to train someone. Half of our dev team didn't know how to code when they started here. I taught them how. So we already have this whole cycle of like getting someone ramped up as a developer. What if we just offered that to people? That's a byproduct. So that's one way something can qualify. The other way is re directly re or reducing harm that we directly caused. So my example of that would be like, like we compost and recycle in our office. St. Louis is kind of backwards and like the city doesn't do this stuff. So you have to pay private companies to come and do that. Yeah, we are the ones creating this waste. We should try to dispose of it responsibly. We're not going to go up and pick up litter outside, right? That's not like we didn't cause that problem. It's we can't solve every problem in the world, but we can try to reduce the harm that we are causing as a company. Um, so those are the, the main constraints that I kind of put on what this work could be. So what's come out of that? Yeah. So um, we kind of, as a company, got together and said, well, what are the main things within that? that like, like, what are the main goals that we would like to target? Um, and we kind of focused on really two. I, I think we technically define them as three things, but in my mind, they're kind of two things. One is, um, from a diversity standpoint, we would like to hire more black people. And... I think people get uncomfortable like saying something that bluntly, but let me explain what I mean here. With diversity, it's hard to ever be like, like quotas and stuff like that feels really uncomfortable. But I think it's useful to be able to say, what is the goal here? What like what should it look like if everything's going well? And I think like a nice, like any company can do this is say, what community do we exist in? Or if you're a remote company, what are all the communities we care about? The company in a perfectly equitable world. The employees at this company would probably look something like the members of the surrounding community. Um, St. Louis is a city with a high white population and a high black population. Like it's more or less a two race city. Um, we have a lot of white employees. We don't have a lot of black employees. We, we actually, it used to be women. We actually think like have addressed that and that's no longer a shortcoming of the company. So we just looked at it and said, that's very clearly the biggest discrepancy between the community we live in and the company Less Wing CRM. That's going to be one of our targets. Now, that's that's kind of like the in OKR world. That's the objective more than the key result, if I understand. Yeah. How, so yeah, the, the key results typically how you will measure success. How will we do that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. The key result is how we'll measure. Whatever. There's then there's like what's the actual pro, what's the actual thing we're going to do to move the needle? Mm -hmm. um, so I haven't said yet what we're going to do to move the needle, but we we agreed on that goal. Yeah. So just a, a tangent on OKRs for a second. So every time I talk to someone about OKRs. I, I get like confused 
But the way I, I just want to be clear, but with you about how I think about OKRs, there's objective and then there's key result. Objective is like the fluffy stuff, like mm-hmm. explanation should be like pump you up kind of thing. The result is how you measure whether you accomplish okay. the objective. But then that cascades, that key result becomes another objective. And then mm. you set key results on that. And so it should like, you know, work it its way down. Yeah. As it goes. Yeah. Okay. So the objective would be like, be an equitable workplace that marks a surrounding community. And then the key result would be percentage of black employee or percentage of employees at Lesson Wing Serum that are black. Something and like that. And you could that. have more than one key result per objective that spiders okay. from there. Gotcha. Okay. But uh, so that makes sense. Thanks for clarifying that. There's still the question of like, at a, at a company as small as ours, where there's really only one level, uh, you need the next le- the next thing, which is, well, what, what the fuck are you actually going to do about this? Yeah. And, and that is where... Um, so many people fall down with OKRs is they try to make it like, like too many levels. It's like, just jump to what you're going to do and call that yeah. a result. Um, <laughs> right. gen- uh, the, the general guidance is I spent a lot of time on this, so I think it's useful to talk about it. Uh, generally the guidance is like, be clear about like what the outcomes are um, that you want to achieve. And then, you know, it's worth going into like some measurable outcome. Cause that's like, it forces you to, it forces you to like build infrastructure around uh, long-term success criteria. Um, but then like the the thing, eventually you've got to get to like binary projects, like a one or zero, I got done. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't have to happen within an OKR. So what I find helpful is like set the measurable outcome and then have initiatives that you think you're, you're going to try related to the OKR that they, whether you do them or not, or whether th- those things are successful, isn't the goal. It's whether you move the needle on the number. Yeah. That makes sense. The, the, uh, the, the other comment I'll say about this is I think the number itself is more important in a bigger company where there's kind of a trust issue or just like if you're delegating some something to someone who delegates it, to someone who delegates it, you can't use personal judgment as much at a company our size, a 20 person company. I th- So like the other one, the first one was what I just said. The other goal, I don't think I need to be able to measure it with data. I think I can look at it and be like, yeah, that's better. And that is, we've decided to make our uh, our software more accessible for users with disabilities. That's, oh, what really? That is interesting. Yeah, I think that's, uh, th- this is one I'm, uh, I'm particularly interested in talking about because I think the whole world, the DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think people really focus on the diversity part of it. And there's a lot of other work than just like hire people from underrepresented groups and the, the type of person who's skeptical about this because it's overly academic, this is the one that's not at all academic. It's like, can our software be used by somebody that doesn't use a mouse? That's a pretty concrete question. And making it better, like a classic example in the DEI world of like why it's, especially accessibility, why like accessibility matters is like curb cutouts on sidewalks. Um, if you've ever had a stroller or been wheeling luggage around, you probably appreciate that the curb cutout exists uh, so that you can get from the curb to the street. Um, that exists, as I understand it, because of the ADA for people with wheelchairs. That's an example of like, it really doesn't cost much to do it. Everyone's life gets better, but it's done because of accessibility concerns. This is one where like, even if you're not disabled, you probably prefer having better keyboard support in Less Annoying CRM. Um, it's just a win, win, win. It's really related to our product. It's not like, let's go volunteer for a soup kitchen. It's let's make our product better. Yeah, exactly. I, I it's like, what, why are you already doing this? Yeah. Um, and that one, uh, that's been like super energizing. We had, we have a handful of, I mean, we probably have more blind users than we realize, but, um, and it's not just for blind people, but, um, 
one in particular reached out earlier this year and was like, when we were all, still honestly pretty early on and kind of embarrassed about where we were at. And he was shouting, he's like, I can tell you, like, we didn't tell him anything. He was just like, I can tell you've put some time into this. This is like the, I, I've tried a bunch of CRMs. This is the only one I can even use at all. And then he was like, here's some feedback on some more things you could do. And we did it. And he like emails all the time. He had me on his podcast. Like we've got this great relationship with this kind of advocate in the dis disability community of that just wouldn't have existed if we hadn't done this. So there's so a lot cool. of really good feelings around that. Yeah, um, that's so cool. But to the OKR thing, I don't really feel the need to put a metric on that because it's like we ship something. It's like, OK, you couldn't use a keyboard and now you can. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah. Uh, where are we going? Where am I going with all of this? Yeah. You got a Part of this was a listener request, but like, I think like, what, what, what do you, what, like, if I take one thing away from this, like, or like, what do you want? Yeah. <clears throat> there, there's kind of a soapbox. Things instead of one. Yeah. There's a, yeah. There's a bit of a soapbox here. So like, absolutely. What, what, yeah. So what, what is the point? <laughs> Let me give you two things instead of one. So All one right. is the culture at less knowing serum around DEI work right now is one where we celebrate wins. We're excited about all the progress we're making. Um, the the meeting we had was not, oh, the world's fucked up. Here's the things we aren't doing well. Here's how it, it was. Look at the actual progress we've made and how things that were a certain way a year ago are better now and how they're going to be even better a year from now. Again, it's exactly how you'd treat any other aspect of a company. Celebrate the wins. Try to have a positive attitude. I just don't think that happens, or at least at Lessening Serum, that, that wasn't happening in the DEI work we were doing. And it just completely shifted everyone's energy levels around it. So that's one thing I'd say. And then the other one I'd say is, while I, I kind of agree with the skeptics that the, the DEI world is full of a lot of fluff and talking, all you have to do for it to not be that way is just pick things to actually do and do them. And we're actually seeing impact. So the fellowship I've mentioned, um, like, again, our app is more accessible. We've partnered with a bunch of student groups uh, for various marginalized groups of people in local universities and given talks and stuff like that and gotten a lot of feedback from them that this, like I, I have a handful of people I can say who work in tech right now that said they probably wouldn't without Less Annoying Serum's influence. Our office is more accessible. We, we audited it. Very simple. Just like we had to move the microwave down three feet because it was too high for someone in a wheelchair to access. Like very basic stuff like that that's concrete and it's not theoretical it's not academic it's like move the fucking microwave and i don't know like the, the work can actually be pretty practical i think yeah i think uh, one thing that i took away from what you just said is um generally when we hear people talk about dei i should say when i hear people talk about dei uh i think of it and it's very abstract it's like okay that new action here like i i don't know how to translate it that into my life so it it becomes somewhat of like a like background noise like you just don't hear it anymore yeah um and what i heard right there is there's actually like some very basic things that every single individual or company can do that has a meaningful impact on inclusion mm -hmm. it, like and pretty minor thing like i don't think every company should even have the level of like i i think we probably objectively spend more money and time on this than a lot of ceos would want to but if you just gave someone half a day a week to 
to go review some of this stuff. I mean, a, a lot of stuff could change and, and the team would feel really good about it. Um, I, I don't like giving the argument that you do DEI work for the ROI. I, I prefer just it's the right thing to do, do it for that reason. But if you are looking for it, team morale, in, at least at, at this company, is so much higher because of this. And it really doesn't take that big of a commitment to get people excited about the, the DEI work. That's cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, um, thanks for thanks for listening. Yeah, uh, my I'm I am positive that our mic our microwave is ADA uh, accessible because <laughs> it's on the floor, <laughs> it's basically on the floor. Like, uh, like it's in the it's it's the weirdest thing for me because I'm used to like reaching like up here, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm looking at like above the stove for a microwave. It's it's like in a cabinet below the <laughs> counter. Yeah, it's the type of thing you never you never think about. Yeah. Um, there were a dozen different little things with our office where it's like super easy to change, but you know, apparently, it, and and as soon as you hear it, you're like, oh yeah, I, I see why that matters. But anyway, that that was my soapbox. Thanks for listening. Yeah, good job. That was, I, I like that. Um, the uh, there was something that I thought of when we were ta- when you were talking that I wanted to talk about. I forgot what it was. I should. I was like, I should write this down, and then <laughs> I didn't write it down, so now I've lost it. Oh well. Uh, too bad. Um. Cool. I've got a couple other little updates I could give, but um, we got what ten minutes here. Anything else you want to talk about? I, I mean, I did have something, but I but you lost it. It's gone. Um, all right. Well, if you remember it, interrupt me. We can dive right, right in. Since we were talking about that, I might just segue. You got it. Yes. Oh no. Yeah. Go um, for it. This is another uh, learning from the coach on how to talk because we literally talked. <laughs> we like talked about how to talk. We practiced how to talk, and then we actually talked about things that we needed to talk about. Um, but one thing I noticed, I learned that I, that I do, and I have a, it's actually really not good for, for clear communication. Um, and I'm just sharing this cause I don't know if you, I don't think you do it actually. I think you're actually really like, you would just ace this guy's class without even have to study. Cheer, um, cheer. uh, yeah, rub my shoulders <laughs> off. Um, but, but they, uh, but, but, but he, if you, if you have like formal management sort of training or you, you have an MBA we're taught as leaders to talk as we like, let's mm. us go do this. Let's, we should do this. And it's actually when you're trying to communicate something extremely confusing when you use the word we, um, and I, so I've always struggled with when do, I, I, I over index on we, but I found myself since learning the difference between like I and we and specificity of like who we is when you're using we now I'm like finding myself saying we, and I'm like, actually, I mean like three people, not everyone. Mm. <laughs> um, so uh, it is hard when it is three people though, because the pronoun is still we for that. It is, but th- you can still say like Steve, Johnny, and and I. Yeah. Like uh, so. Um, anyway, that's a this is another little trick that came out of this coaching session. Like, pay attention to um, when you're saying we to someone when you actually mean like you and one other person decided something uh, that you want that person to, uh, you know act on. Uh, they actually aren't part of the we and you just need them to, to mm. get it done. Um, I'm finding myself, maybe that's unique to me, but I'm finding myself like, I'm saying like we to a group of salespeople. And what I'm actually saying is uh, me and the CEO have decided, <laughs> uh, the CEO and I have decided that uh, this is the way it's going to be. <laughs> yeah. So I like that just from the standpoint of like precision and honesty tends to be good. But is the is the thought here that if you say we inappropriately that the person listening is like, well, hang on, I didn't say that. And they, they kind of think you're bullshitting them. Is it's that- confusing. It's like, okay. wait, wait, like either you're manipulating me mm-hmm. um, intentionally or like now I'm confused. Like I, 
what did I miss a meeting where this was decided and I was part of that? Yeah. There's so. a different form of I think like one form of it is uh, trying to give people credit or try, trying to make it feel more like a team um, and build consensus. That's one reason someone might say we. But the other form is like a lot of solo founder, like very early stage startups will say we to pretend to be bigger than they are. And that that's an especially bad one because like the other person knows like you're not fooling anybody with that. Uh, let me uh, hold one second. Let me call um, our legal team real quick. Yeah. <laughs> and then you put on. Hello. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, you and I, but like, I feel like at Zane Benefits where you and I both like our first job out of college, there was a whole lot of like pretending to be a bigger company than we are. I think it worked. <laughs> I remember one day we, uh, we had a client coming in and we had an office with maybe like 25 seats like cubicles and but like maybe 16 employees Stop, I, so, I, I know where you're going with this one day they were like everyone bring your friends in tell them to dress in business casual and <laughs> sit in a cubicle <laughs> we literally had family members sit pretending to work i remember yeah. that it was so stupid um but okay maybe i don't know if it worked That's or not a true story that is not made up i'm embarrassed <laughs> to have been a part of that were you were you uh i i think that was I, didn't, I don't remember you being like the ringleader behind that. Maybe you were. I don't oh, know. that was uh, pre me being like that was before, that was before the, the layoffs, layoffs, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we were we were peons at that point. Yeah, <laughs> but I yeah maybe if you really put effort into faking it. I mean, there are plenty of hucksters out there who get away with faking it, but um, generally speaking, I think saying "I" for a solo founder is uh, a much better way to to communicate. It's, that it's more honest. Yeah. Um. Yeah, th- thanks for saying that though, and I appreciate you saying I do that naturally. But I, uh, I I'm going to try my best to have that in my head and, and do better as well. You said I right there. That was a good job. We're gonna we're gonna remember this, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, I I, I got to run, but uh, okay. um, so maybe um, if you'd like to review past notes and past episodes and show notes, you can visit startblast.com. Um, otherwise, uh, hope the intro is was pleasant. All right. Talk to you later, Rick.